Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. We are your hosts. I am Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And we are welcoming back Rachel Ablin. Thank you for coming back, Rachel. She is the founder of Ablin Law PC. I encourage you to listen to her first episode where we give a little bit more details on her bio or check out her website. The only thing we'll add this time is that in addition to creating her own firm, in 2019, Crane's Chicago Business recognized Rachel as a notable Gen X leader. Rachel, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Happy to have you back. So last time you came on, you talked to us a little bit about workplace investigations, advice, to-dos, not-to-dos, things you see a lot, and how you go about it. This time we wanted to talk about your career because it almost feels like a prequel episode because this gives us kind of the background on what got you here. So you started off at the EEOC, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Correct. I started, actually, I was in law school and I started as an investigator full-time at the EEOC in Chicago and uh, the Chicago district office. And I ended up, I had already started law school and I sort of, I happened, I really, it, it was kismet, I think. I ended up getting this job. And so I switched to the evening program for law school and just worked full-time during the day and went to law school at night. Did you know at, at that point in law school, you wanted to do something in employment law? It's an interesting story. My husband, my now husband, he was not my husband at the time, was in grad school at doing human resources, master's in human resources and labor relations. And he saw the ad for the EEOC investigator. And my background, I mean, I, I just was sort of always committed to anti-discrimination. I had done some volunteer intern work at the Anti-Defamation League and that sort of thing. And he found it and said, wow, this would be a great job for you. And I thought, well, I'm not really looking for a job. I'm in law school. And just sort of on a lark. (laughs) And then in, in EEOC fashion, I think I got called in very last minute for an interview on Christmas Eve day. Yeah, it was like, it was almost, I never got confirmation of this, but it was almost like, we're going to lose our budget and we don't hire somebody before the end of the year. So we better get someone in, but I don't know if that's actually true, but you know, looking back, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what it was, but it was great. I loved it there. So what, what kind of work were you doing? I mean, it's not, you know, you were an investigator, but can you talk about what that means? Sure. So first of all, you have, when I was there, I mean, this is ages ago now, but you think, you know, I was right out of college, essentially, because I really had only maybe a year or half a year. I don't even remember anymore how much law school I had, but I didn't have a ton of work experience. So they trained us up to do investigations. So we got thoroughly trained on the law and how to conduct investigations and ended up, you know, maybe, I mean, I would say on average, we probably had 150 cases at any given time. 
then, you know, I don't know what's happening now, but so you would just sort of be working through your pile of cases and, and it's very similar to what I do now, which is, you know, interviewing complainants, interviewing witnesses, looking at documentation, responding to, sending out requests for information, responding to, you know, requests and information, you know, witness questions or complainant questions or respondent questions, that kind of thing and making a determination. And then depending on what the determination was, it would get reviewed you know, by legal to decide if there would be any further you know, action taken. And I think at some point then you were on a special assignment regarding like significant sexual harassment cases. Is that right? Yeah. So at the end, um, of, before I graduated, you know, shortly before I left, actually, I think I was working on primarily sort of high profile sexual harassment type cases. And every once in a while, you know, there would be an effort to focus on a particular subject matter, or there was a focus of the office for, for a particular year. And that year, there was a focus on harassment, sexual harassment, and, and the district director at the time wanted me looking at all of the more significant sexual harassment claims. And how are those, if at all, investigations different than what you had been doing before? I don't think that they were different. I think it was just a um, more prioritized or a more focused effort. I think, you know, mm-hmm. it was some time ago. So I, unfortunately, I, just, I don't remember a ton of the cases, but it was similar. It was just that there was, a, you know, sort of a removed like, let's not do all these other kinds of cases. Let's have Rachel just focus on these, which was fun, you know, interesting. I don't know about fun, but interesting at the time. Oh, and then I think at some point from there, you transitioned to Walgreens. Is that right? So once I graduated law school, I had decided to start applying. I didn't know that I wanted to actually stay at the EEOC as an attorney for a number of different reasons. And um, just sort of trying to figure out you know, what I was going to do next and see what the options were and, and weigh all those options. And uh, the nice thing about it was that I had a job, a full-time job. So I wasn't in a huge rush to get something. It was, you know, I was able to pick and choose. And I kind of always knew I wanted an in-house position. And at the time it was, you know, in-house jobs are, you know, especially then were really tough to find. And you usually had to have a ton of litigation experience. And, you know, they were kind of like a golden ticket. Like people thought, well, once we go in, once you go in the house, that's it, you stay and, and you never leave and it's a great job. And so I always wanted it. I never thought I would get it right out of law school. I assumed I would have to go to a law firm. And again, I, I have to say it was, I applied to a blind ad. <laughs> I didn't know it was Walgreens. So I applied to a blind ad for, you know, an employment attorney position. And when I got called and they said it was Walgreens, I mean, I almost fell off my chair, honestly. And the interesting thing at the time that I, you know, I had been going on interviews and I loved working at the EEOC. I loved the people I worked with. I loved, I really enjoyed it there. I, I really liked it. And I will say, it's funny what you remember, because this is so long ago now, but I would go on interviews and people would just bash the EEOC in the interview. You know, like, oh, you know, that's, I don't even remember what they said, but I remember they would be sort of derogatory about the EEOC. And I was really offended by it. 
because I thought, well, I'm at, I love it there. And I feel like, you know, they're trying to do good work. I don't know, you know, I get that it's, it's troublesome to employers, but you know, the, the, the intent is there and, and the people I worked with, you know, wanted to do the right thing. And so I, I would be, I was truly offended. And when I went to Walgreens, they were, they were not like that at all, which really gave, you know, they really were complimentary. And, and I have to say, I, I got the impression like they wanted to do, you know, you, they wanted to do the right thing too, you know, that I was going if I joined that I'd be joining with a group of people who, you know, cared like I cared. And I feel like that was really a nice, a nice quality. I, I don't think I would have gone to a company where they were complaining about the EEOC. Well, right. I mean, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is there's an easy way to keep the EEOC out of your hair, which is, you know, look into that stuff and deal with it. And they don't really have to be a problem for you. Right. Um, you know, just a thought. <laughs> it's kind of awkward to interview someone okay. and then just badmouth their former employer. Right, right. Oh, you work for them? Shame on you, even though you still work there. Yeah. Um, so, so switching from being, a, I guess, a proactive investigator on behalf of ongoing complaints, not that you're advocating for complainants, you're trying to figure out if something's happened. What was the change like for you going from that side of it to being internal for, for a corporate organization like that? The first thing was that I didn't have to buy my own pens. <laughs> I was stunned. <laughs> and I remember needing a dictionary and the secretary said, oh, I'll just order you one. And I was like, oh, I don't have to bring in my own dictionary. <laughs> But I'm dating myself because I'm talking about a dictionary. Um, I still have one, though. So. Do you? Yeah. yeah. It's uh, you can't really. I don't know if you can see my books over here, but right there, <laughs> several actually. <laughs> I, we, people still use dictionaries, Rachel. <laughs> really, paper ones? Can't believe it. I mean, just somebody must. Somebody. Anyway, so that was the first shock was when I was getting paper and pens and dictionaries and I didn't have to pay, bring them in myself. That was great. I will say the thing that was so nice about being in-house and particularly, you know, I, I only have experience there, so I don't know from other places, but the nice thing I, as a transition was that I felt like I could prevent problems, correct problems, fix problems, help people out in a more proactive way being in-house than I was at the EEOC. Because once it gets to the EEOC, it's done, right? It's kind of like litigation, which is probably why I never really went in, you know, to a firm. Once, once you, you know, once it's done, it's done. And now you're just sort of arguing about, you know, like res re resolution in terms of settlement, but the harm's done, right? And, when I was in-house, I could act more like an ombudsman, at least in this position, because it was a lot of employee relations work. You know, you could really sort of find out what the problem is and try to fix the problem for somebody. And, and that was, I found pretty satisfying. I enjoyed that. What were some of the, what are common mistakes you sometimes noticed attorneys making from the other From plaintiff side? Yeah, from plaintiff side. I will be, no, you know, present company excluded, of course, just being obnoxious, just being rude and obnoxious. 
wins no favor from an EEOC investigator or from an in-house employment council. Don't be obnoxious. You know, I will say the plaintiff's attorneys where they really had great claims, you know, where you really knew you were up against something, they didn't yell and scream. They didn't pound their hands on the table. They didn't, you know, they, they were like, I got, I got the goods and, you know, here, here they are. And, and, you know, I got the goods. And I would say for the most part, the EOC would back you and the in-house counsel or would be willing to resolve it. Generally, I mean, I, mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I think it's a general rule. It's the sort of the coming in guns a blazing, you know, real just aggressive just at least for me turned me off and made me wonder if there was any there there well i think it was david lee or rich gonzalez i can't remember which one of them would say this maybe both of them but like if you're dealing with in-house counsel or the eoc the end goal right is you're trying to get somebody to give you money you know you you really there's no incentive to be rude for the sake of i mean just from besides the fact that you shouldn't treat people that way and it's just not courteous there's no need for it and you're trying to get them to do something for you so you really ought to be nice to them right right especially eoc <laughs> yeah. right? even, even in-house though because you you're maybe not the ultimate decision maker but you can still heavily influence that decision maker and so it makes no sense to come in gung-ho guns blazing when that relationship could end up leading to a better outcome for your client right you, you really want to convince me. You don't want to bully me. Right. You know, if you yeah. bully me, I'm going to bully back. I'm going to say no, right? That's your first instinct when someone comes at you like that, or at least mine. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find also like staying with that mistakes that are made, posturing and kind of chest thumping, not necessarily in a rude way, but kind of fluffing up facts that aren't there, just kind of posturing in ways, making kind of idle threats. I, do, you, do you feel like that portends a sign of weakness or like if, if you really feel like you got to do this stuff, like you, I just don't, you know, I'm not going to take it seriously. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely do. You know, it's the quiet ones, you know, that are like, oh boy, we, you know, we're all employment attorneys and for the most part, I mean, dealing in this kind of work. And so, you know, we know as much as you do in terms of what's a problem <laughs> and what's not a problem. <laughs> so, you know, obviously there's always going to be differing opinions and, and, you know, the plaintiff's attorney might not know facts that, that the in-house counsel knows and vice versa. So, you know, there's always an argument, but yeah, being, being, sort of just confident and quiet about it, you know, is a lot more, a lot scarier <laughs> in my mind <laughs> than uh, the bolstering. Why did you end up setting up your own shop then? So it sounds like you had a pretty good experience at Walgreens. Yeah, I loved it there. You know, the company was sold and it went through a lot of changes at the end. And, you know, when you start thinking about I, it, we had layoffs and changes and upper management left and and it was just a lot for a long time you know towards that my end of my my time there and you know you start thinking about I probably never would have left but as soon as you start having layoffs and things like that you start thinking about well what would be my you know if I got laid off what would be my next 
move? You know, would I go to another company? Would I, what would I want to do? And, you know, having, I probably never would have thought about it, but then, you know, because you're sort of thrusted in that situation where you start to think about those things, you know, I, I realized that this would be sort of an interesting new chapter. So I started looking into it a little bit more and then eventually I decided, look, I, I'm going to do that. I'm ready for a change and I'm going to do this now. So I ended up just leaving and, and, and opening up my own shop just because it was a new and exciting challenge and something different. and. It was getting kind of just sad, you know? Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois in the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. How do you like being your own boss? So there's good days and bad days. Um, so it's a lot, you know, there is something to be said for, you know, getting to do what you want to do, how you want to do it, when you want to do it, that kind of thing. But then on the flip side, there's also a lot of pressure, right? There's a lot of, you know, I've got to keep this afloat. It's all me. You know, if, if it, 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 there is, something really nice about having a, a firm or a company to kind of back you up or, you know, have all the, the pieces in place so that you're just not sort of going it alone. So I do miss that too, but it, you know, it's, you trade one for the other. You can't have everything. I don't no, think. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there are definitely, it's nice to not have to report to someone, but it's also nice then to have someone who can help support you as well. For sure. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. What advice would you give to other attorneys who are starting their own firms or their own business? There, you know, I think in initially, I think it takes, a, I think the startup time is, is, you know, a long sort of process. I think you can't expect to, to go out on your own and, you know, immediately have a ton of work, I don't think. I mean, I was coming from, you know, if you have a book of business and you're taking your book of business with you, then maybe that's a different situation. I don't know. I was starting from scratch. Um, but I do think it takes time. I do think it does, you know, any kind of networking and marketing you do does pay off. Ultimately, I just think it takes time. I think it takes probably a good, maybe five years to truly, truly get it, get it going. So, but it is rewarding. Did you know, did you know, as you left, this was going to be your practice profile or were you maybe thinking investigations would be one part of it, but you might do other services? Yeah, I, I knew investigations. I did think about mediation. I do do training. I, I don't, I haven't been doing mediation, but I do do training. I thought maybe my rest of services would be a little bit bigger, but I, you know, I, I sort of knew I wanted to do investigations because that I was comfortable and I had so much experience doing it that I kind of went with that thinking that if I keep it sort of niche and focused that, you know, maybe that would differentiate me from other places, but I always sort of left open the possibility that I would do other types of things if, if that just didn't work out or I didn't have enough work to do. And I think you launched your firm right before the Me Too movement really picked up steam. And so 
your firm has it started right around the Me Too movement and then continued through the pandemic and then Black Lives Live movement last summer. How, and in COVID, obviously, how have you seen investigations kind of evolve over the last five, six years or so, if at all? So I think that the types of things people complain about is different now than it used to be. And I'm not sure if that's a generational thing. I do have a lot of admiration for, you know, the younger generation, maybe the generation you guys are in. I don't know, but because I do think there is less of a tolerance of kind of nonsense that maybe some of us tolerated, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't have any personal experience with that kind of thing, but I know friends, you know, have throughout the years just sort of tolerate, even if it's, even if it's not like illegal conduct, just sort of like, you know, no work-life balance and, you know, sort of expectations that, you know, maybe were unreasonable. I don't know, but I think that now there's less tolerance of just sort of nonsense in the workplace, which can be good and bad, but I, it's really interesting. I have to say, it's, it's very interesting to me to see it kind of evolve. But the nature of investigations, how you do the investigations, I, I frankly, you know, things tweak here and there, but generally I think it's, you know, the same for the most part. Do you, I guess building on that answer, do you feel like the the nature of complaints you see differs based on the age of the complainant. In other words, are you seeing more complaints from younger in your investigations? Are the complaints on a harassment or maybe just uncouth remarks basis coming more from younger um, employees than it used to? Or is it maybe that's hard to quantify? It's hard to quantify. I mean, I still see kind of anything and everything, but it is hard to quantify. But when you interview some of the younger employees, I do notice maybe less reticence to complain about something, you know, something, which I find interesting because it's not, it's kind of a new, in my world, it feels, but you know, you can't generalize and, 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 and what I'm working with is so anecdotal. I mean, I'm just such a small percentage of, you know, all the matters out there. It's, it's really hard to tell, but it is interesting to see a, a kind of a shift in, in work in the workplace at least from my perspective. So pivoting entirely away from that, we wanted to talk a little bit about some of your nonprofit work. So you are on the board of an organization that you were kind enough to plug at the end of your last episode, Shalva, which does wonderful work. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with Shalva or your board position with it and what what Shalva can do for, for people? Sure. So it is, I am the board secretary I can't tell you how many years because I can't remember how many years I've been on the board. It seemed to go really quickly somehow. It's a very small, localized, Chicago-based Jewish organization that works to combat domestic violence within, pretty much within the Jewish organization, or excuse me, within the Jewish community in Chicago, Chicagoland area. We do a lot of work, preventative work. I know we have a new program now for couples getting married and sort of, you know, raising sort of ways to see red flags, that kind of stuff. Working with women who might be making a transition or might be leaving or trying to figure out what to do or, you know, trying to come up with solutions for their situations. And so they do a lot of good work and a lot of outreach and yeah, it's been, it's a really, really nice, small sort of act local kind of organization. 
if, if people need Shelva services or want to get involved or help out with it, how would they do that? So you go to the website and they will answer. If you have a question, concern, problem, if they're not the right organization, they'll get you to the right organization. So you can call. You definitely can go to shelvacares.com and um, look at all the outreach programs or if you want to volunteer or if you want to, if you need help or you have somebody who needs help, you can call. And even if they're, you know, they have a kind of a limited scope because it's not a big organization, but they have connections to all kinds of different organizations. So they'll make sure somebody gets into the right hands if, if they can't help. So remind us again, how do we find you? So I, you can find me on my website, which is www.ablinlaw, and it's A-B-L-I-N-L-A-W.com. And a lot of people switch the B and the L. There's an inclination to want to say A-L-B-I-N, so it's not. It's A-B-L. I'm also on LinkedIn and all those kind of social media places, but yeah, that's the best way to find me. Do you have uh, an investigations TikTok or Snapchat you're running right oh, now? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> you should, you should do TikTok. It's great. It's too good, actually, in my opinion. It's too much time there. But thanks again for coming on. This thanks, was- Rachel. It was good my working pleasure. with you. My pleasure. It's fun talking to you both. Thank you. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast is not great an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.